Well, we're continuing this series called The Summer of Me, and we talked about this last week, this idea, if you will, kind of a Laodicean idea, that summer is all about me and what I want to do and my plans, but I tell you, we just got a great example, times like maybe 20 or so, I'll tell you, the young people at Nasoka Pines that work there, they could be doing a host of other things, but they were so service-oriented, I've never seen young people that were so wanting to help, so, so cheerful, so kind to each other. They weren't cliquish. Whatever needed to be done, they were in and doing it. And so, guys, my hat's off to you and the whole staff. Um, rather than being a summer of me, they were serving this summer and are still serving. They still have several weeks to go there at the camp. But trying to look at this idea, is summer, or any season for that matter, about me? Or is it about some bigger purpose than that? We've also talked this morning some about quizzes. Maybe you've been in summer school. Maybe you had an early class. I don't know the situation, but maybe when the alarm clock went off, you thought, uh-uh. And maybe you hit snooze. Maybe you just unplugged the thing from the wall. But at that moment, when you go back to sleep and your head hits the pillow, you feel really good about that decision. Am I right? You're looking at this slide. No one wants to raise their hand. Maybe it was the fact that there was this girl on campus, and she had this free period, and you had this class, but you thought, no, you know, I'd rather spend time with her anyway, and so you skip the class again. And it feels really good at that moment. And you might do that several times. In certain colleges, they don't check up on you. They don't even take attendance sometimes. It's just, well, you better show up, and you better do well on the final exam, right? I have five times 10 or 100 questions, and they're all easy questions if you know the answers. Seems like I heard that somewhere this morning. Have you ever taken a test where you read the question, and you read it again, and you look at the clock, and you skip the question, you go to the next one, read it again, skip the question, go to the next one, the next one, the next one, and before you know it, the whole page is just kind of swimming. And all of a sudden, the room gets really hot, and you're thinking, why did I sleep in all this semester? The final exam. Don't worry, it's just 75% of your grade. We've been looking, last week we looked at the first two angels' messages. Today we're going to look at the third. But the three angels' messages of Revelation 14 are the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 24. And really, Matthew 28, I think, is probably what I should have had up on the screen, too. Matthew 28, go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, and so on and so on. In Revelation 14, we see the fulfillment of that. And the first angel is, fear God, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, the springs of water. And when that first came down the pike with the 2300-day message, it was a wake-up call. Jesus was coming, so they thought. And so they got their lives in order. Today we know Jesus is ministering in the most holy place, interceding for us. But I think the wake-up call is still in effect. We need to get our lives in order. We're in overtime. Jesus is going to come soon. And so that first is a wake-up call. We already talked about that. The second angel is to expose the danger of the truth and error mixture of Babylon that is grooming us to receive the mark of the beast. A little truth, a little error, does anybody like to be groomed? I don't. And so that's what the second angel is talking about, and we looked at that last time. But the third angel now says, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, 
If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. You see, that's easy. I know the answers to the final exam. That's that Sunday Sabbath issue. And so I know exactly what I'm going to do in that situation. I'll be fine. And when that time comes, when I see everybody, you know, the, the Sunday law is in force, then I'll know that's my time to get my act together. And so that's when I'll get rid of this and I won't do that anymore. And I'll spend more time in my Bible and I'll do all of these things so I don't miss it. I know nobody here thinks that way. But maybe you know somebody that does. Verse 12 says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is kind of like that final exam, if you will. And will you be prepared when that time comes to make the right choice or the right decision? Now, the warning against the mark of the beast is not the means of resisting the mark any more than listening to the news broadcast of a coming storm is sufficient to protect you from the storm. It's just a warning. Now, it just depends on what you do with that warning. Honey, there's a tornado coming. Great. Are you sure you want to keep trimming the trees? Yeah. I mean, the warning is good, but if you ignore the warning... And so the third angel's message is simply that. It's not so much the solution. In fact, it's not a solution at all. It's just a warning. And so I want you to look with me in your Bibles at Revelation 13 at something that sometimes we, we overlook a little bit. Revelation chapter 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 16, talking about the beast from the earth or the United States in, in Bible prophecy and so on which is a fascinating study if you have not been through that. And it says, He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark, there it is again, on their right hand or on their foreheads, that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And here's the wisdom. Let him who understands calculate the number of the beast, for his number is of a man. His number is 666. And then chapter 14, then I looked and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's what? Name written on their foreheads. So there's not just one mark. There's two marks and you're going to have one or the other. Two marks, and they both contain names. Names in Scripture refer to character. Over and over in Scripture, you can find something out about the person being spoken of by researching their name. What does it mean? They're very significant. And even today, we look before we name our children. What does that mean? Stupid one. Well, let's choose another name, <laughs> right? I don't know what name that is. Hopefully, it's not yours. But this idea that everyone will receive a mark and that mark or that name, if you will, on their forehead is the character of one or the other. You're either going to have the character and characteristics of the beast power or you're going to have the character and characteristics of God. And it's one or the other. It's not going to be half and half. It's not going to be like leper. It's going to be one or the other. It says this in volume 5 of the Testimonies, page 216. 
What are you doing, brethren? In the great work of preparation. You know what preparation means, right? Those who are uniting with the world are receiving the worldly mold and preparing for the mark of the beast. Now, if nobody has the mark yet, I thought it was just the right answer on a test question. But this makes it sound like I'm preparing or somebody is preparing me to receive the mark of the beast. Now, hopefully the inverse of that is true, and I'm preparing to receive the name of Christ rather than the name of the beast on my forehead. Now, I'm going to pause this right here in this message. Somebody might say, flag on the play. In fact, somebody spoke to me at the door, and that's fine. I'm glad that they did. They said, you know, I don't know if I feel so comfortable, or at least I've heard some people talking in our church, not as comfortable with spirit prophecy being used in church. Now, we just recently went through this series, Why I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. The fourth and fifth talked about the spirit of prophecy. The fifth, I believe, and maybe the fourth too, is still on our website. You can get it on Audioverse and listen to it there as well. But I want to take just a small time out. We're just going to take five. Is it okay for us to use the spirit of prophecy in church, or does that need to stay somewhere else? Well, 2 Chronicles 36, 15, and 16 says this, And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and his dwelling place and on his dwelling place. God sends messengers, God sends prophets because he has compassion on you and on me. Now we can hide that message or we can share it. But this is oftentimes what the case ends up being. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets. Notice whose words they are. God's words. They're not the prophets' words. They're God's words for a specific time to get them through that period of time. And really, after we have Moses and the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath and creation and all that, over and over again, the prophets are pointing people back, 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 because they have forgotten some of the key points in Scripture. And so it's not necessary to give something new. I mean, you do have Daniel and his prophecies, and you have John the Revelator and so on, but for the most part, it's pointing people back, back, back. And even John and uh, the Revelator and Daniel are pointing people back to Scripture. So the question is, do we despise the prophet? There are some places people don't want to hear anything the prophet has to say. It's this old la, 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 la. Ignorance is bliss. And this is what I talked about, but we're going to look at some of this again because the question came up. Exodus 17, 4, then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me, says the prophet. Is it anything new that the people of God want to stone the prophet? Sadly, it's not. Why? Because the Bible, well, it's, it's pretty plain, but we've got some ways to weasel out of this verse and that verse, and so we can get around things. But then the prophet comes, and they're just so specific. We can't get around it. What should we do? I know, stone the prophet. Who has words from the Lord? Jeremiah 11 says, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth and who seek your life, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hand. We don't want to hear it anymore. There's a trend here. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, who stood above the people, and said to them, Thus says the Lord. Again, it's a prophet speaking, but these are the Lord's words. Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord? Pointing back to Scripture so you cannot prosper. 
And so they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. The prophet is prophesying. He's sharing the words of the Lord in the house of the Lord, and what do they want to do? Let's stone him. You could say, well, stoning the prophet's a biblical idea. Well, it's not a good one. What did Jesus say? Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves, that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. I tried to give you someone to warn you of the things that were impending, and what did you do? In fact, I can even recall a parable along those lines. And he sends, and he sends, and he sends, and finally he sends his son. Now listen to my son. And what happened? They nailed him to a tree. I send you prophets, wise men, scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the prophet we just read about, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Are you getting a picture here? Does God want us to listen to his prophets or are we just supposed to ignore them? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Listen, Listen, thank you. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I've gone out of my way. I've given you everything to prepare you. This is in Acts 7, 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. So it's really nothing new that people don't like to hear the spirit of prophecy. And Revelation 12, 17, and the dragon, the devil, was enraged with the woman, the church, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then in 1910, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What does that mean, church? Seventh-day Adventists, to have the spirit of prophecy. That means we just stick it in our pocket and sit on it. Is that what it means? No. It means we read it. We understand it. I mean, what good is a warning if you don't look at it? Comes in the box, warning, caution, don't know, yeah, 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 throw it away. And then this thing happens. I had no idea. God has entrusted the remnant church with the gift of prophecy. I don't think the church, that is the body of believers, we Seventh-day Adventists, I don't think we need to hide the writings of Ellen White under a bushel. Because they're pointing us back, back, back to Scripture time and time and time again. And she herself says, if you really read your Bibles, you wouldn't need me. The problem is we don't read our Bibles or spirit of prophecy because they condemn us. And we don't like to be condemned, so we like to live in our ignorance. And ignorance is bliss until the final exam. You're trying to scare me, Pastor. No, I'm not. I'm trying to have compassion. And so is God. Ephesians 4, verse 8. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. This is one of three places where we have Jesus giving gifts to men. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I don't see anywhere in that paragraph that says, except for prophecy, that one, just sit on it. It's to edify the body of Christ. 
So in all three major groupings of spiritual gifts, in Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, the only one that's mentioned in all three is the gift of prophecy. God wants to have his church, or God has given his church the gift of prophecy, and it is a gift. It's a precious gift. What are we doing with it? 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Talking about tongues. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. So maybe I should ask, from those of you in this room, do you believe? Or is this a room filled with unbelievers? Now I get that. If you have a bunch of unbelievers, you don't typically start with prophecy. Well, you do start with prophecy, but you have to make sure it's all from Scripture, 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 right? I'm all about Scripture. Ellen White points back to Scripture. It's all about Scripture. But tongues is a sign for non-believers. But for the house of God, for His people, He's given the gift of prophecy. Acts 2, 17, 18, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Are we living in the last days? And they shall do what? Prophesy. prophesy. Doesn't say sit on it. Another one, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 to 4. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. But especially, you know what especially means? Emphasize, especially that you may have prophecy. He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. And he who prophesies edifies or builds up the church. I talked about this last time. I won't get into this. Acts 15, 1 to 15. But we see doctrinal confusion. They're both defending each side because of what they see in Scripture. Peter says, I was shown. That's a vision. That's prophecy. And then Paul and Barnabas confirm his experience with Scripture. Okay? And James says, Scripture agrees with the vision and makes his conclusion. That's what takes place in Acts chapter 15. Prophecy is a a vital part of all of that because you have both sides warring and they both have their passages and God sends a messenger, he gives him a dream, he makes a determination and the matter is settled. So this is perhaps the quote that some are referring to, the words of the Bible and the Bible alone should be heard from the pulpit. There it is. No more of this prophecy stuff. Get that out of here. Well, if we take this as literally as we possibly can, then it's going to save me a whole lot of time and Pastor Hyman on preparing our sermons because I'm not going to say one word of my own. I'm just going to read Scripture to you the entire time. Is that what she's talking about? Can we not bring various elements and observations into this thing? But yes, what what are we doing? We're checking to see, is this in line with Scripture? In fact, if you keep reading... Most of your problems, if you could just keep reading in Patriarchs and Kings 626, what's the context of this statement? In many sermons of today, there is not the divine manifestation which awakens the conscience and brings life to the soul. Why? Because they're not using the the word that's living and active and powerful. What are they doing? The hearers cannot say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us, by the way, and while he opened to us the scriptures? That's Jesus, and that's really referring to prophecy and who he was and what he fulfilled. But it says, let the word of God speak to the heart. Let those who have heard only tradition and human theories and maxims, these little phrases, hear the voice of him who can renew the soul unto eternal life. That's what it's talking about. 
So she's saying, give me the Bible. Give me meat. And I'm in favor of that. Give me the Bible. Give me meat. I don't want to have human traditions and theories and all this surmising. Don't waste my time with funny stories and anecdotes and then just put one scripture at the end and call it a sermon. I want more. And that's what she's talking about. Here's another one. Selected Messages, Volume 3, verse 29. In public labor, do not make prominent. She doesn't say never use ever, but she says don't make prominent. And quote that which Sister White has written as authority to sustain your positions. But notice, it's public labor. And I do that. When we have an evangelistic campaign, you're about to have a campaign, we're not going to bring in all these quotes because people are going to say, who is that? I don't know who that is. That person doesn't mean anything to me. Over time, they might, but they don't now. So it's Bible, 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 Bible. Can we prove everything from the Bible? Of course we can. Does Ellen White really bring a lot of new stuff in? Nope. She's just like a laser beam making it so exact you can't hedge around it. You can't get past it. It's so plain. And that's one of the reasons people throw her out first. Because I can weasel around some scriptures, but I can't weasel around some of the things that she just sets out so plain. Same idea, but doesn't leave any wiggle room. So if my best friend gives me a map to go through a channel with rocks and shallow places, and it's dangerous, and I, he also has a chief navigator, he says, you know what, I'm going to send my chief navigator to help you interpret this map and get safely through this channel. Would I not be a little bit crazy to say, sure? Or would I say, nope, I have the map. I really don't know what this is or what this is and how big that is or how close. But I have the map. I'll be fine. That's essentially what we say. Is the chief navigator going to do anything else besides make this more and more plain? No. Chief navigator is going to point back. Now, this part is really crucial. When you come through here and make sure... Pointing back to scripture. Are we taking more than five minutes? So where were we? Uh, testimony 605. The Lord designs to warn you, to reprove, to counsel through the testimonies given and to impress your minds with the importance of the truth of his word. God has through the testimonies simplified the great truths already given and in his own chosen way. Whose idea is prophecy, by the way? God's. Whose words are they? God's. His own chosen way brought them before the people to awaken and impress the mind with them that all may be left without excuse. I don't want anybody to say, no, wait a minute, I didn't know. So I'm going to make it so abundantly plain. La, 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 don't want to hear it. I have the map. This is what the church voted, 27 fundamental beliefs back in 1980. I think this was in Dallas, Texas. Uh, I was one at the time. But anyway, as the Lord's messenger... Her writings are a continuing and authoritative source of truth which provide for the church comfort, guidance, and instruction and correction. So if we were to take score, how are we doing to today on this message? Well, I actually went through and counted up. We have 35 Bible verses and five spirit of prophecy quotes. But I think that some see a spirit of prophecy quote as a red flag. And they say, oh, I don't like that. Give us the Bible and the Bible only. You know, we could take out those five quotes and we'd still have the 35 Bible verses and I still could make a, a point, right? But can't I further support what the Bible has been saying all along with the spirit of prophecy? Yes, and that's the role. So that none of us are left with an excuse. Abundantly clear. It's like the rules on the board in the classroom, but the 
for whatever reason, there's always that student, yeah, but does that mean I can do this? Does that really mean that? And they have to explain it and they go back to the board. What does it say? So, where were we? Hard to remember. We had just read Revelation 13, 16 and 14, verse 1, talking about names, how there's two marks or two names in Scripture, that one's going to be on your forehead, one or the other. And it's not so much just about head knowledge, but there's a preparation that takes place. Two marks both contain names. Names refer to character. And we had just looked at this work about preparation and preparing uh, for the mark of the beast or being groomed, if you will, and how we don't want to be groomed. So look with me now, if you will, to Matthew chapter 22. But it says, Then he said to his servants, in verse 8, The wedding is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. And so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, Friend, how do you come in here without a wedding garment? And it says what? He was speechless. Now the wedding garment is character. And back in that time, if you're going to put on a big to-do, you don't want anybody to, to lower things, so you want to have everybody dressed in nice attire, and so the king would supply everybody with a nice gown so everybody looked nice. And so it was offered to just a few? No, everybody. And he comes and he says... Did I not supply you with a really nice wedding garment? How did you get in here without your garment? He's wearing his own, not the character of Christ. He's wearing his own character. He's wearing the character that he feels the most comfortable in. The habits that he, well, it's not that big a deal. It's just on occasion. Yeah, but don't you want to give it up? I have something better for you. No, no, no. I like my garment just fine. And they don't want to give it up. Now, if this individual was ignorant, how did you get in here without a garment? He would have said, garment? What garment? I didn't know we were supposed to have a garment. Are we supposed to, you know, wear, wear the blue shirt. I didn't see a blue shirt. Does anybody have a blue shirt? I'll, I'll put one on. Just give me a blue shirt. But what does it say? He was speechless. In our more current vernacular, we might say busted. Why? He knows that this has been offered. He knows that he is supposed to put it on. But he just would rather not. And so here he is at the feast. Here he is in heaven feeling fully entitled to be there. But he doesn't have on what? He doesn't have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He doesn't have the character. He doesn't have the name of Jesus Christ. And what is the words that Jesus gives to this man? Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where many are called, but few are chosen. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. It doesn't just say gnashing of teeth. Gnashing is when you're just really upset. But weeping and gnashing. It's like my friend who had, he was driving his car and he kept hearing this knocking in the car. He says, it's okay, it's under warranty as long as it's under 100,000 miles. And so he kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. You know where this is going. And he finally says, okay, I've got to do it. I'm at 99,000 miles. And he takes it in. And yeah, well, it's probably this problem. It's a little bit expensive. We'll diagnose this and see. And it's going to be about this much. Oh, but it's under warranty. Oh, you're under warranty. Then you won't pay anything. He said, yeah, good. 
And they sure enough diagnosed it. That was the problem. That was what it would cost. But we have bad news for you. It's 100,000 miles or seven years, and that expired last week. <laughs> he knew for months, but didn't do anything about it. All it is is a little time, just a little time. But you better believe when he heard that news, there was both weeping and gnashing of teeth. He knew what he needed to do. And I imagine at that moment he was a little bit speechless. But he didn't do it. The wedding garment is offered. God's character is offered. Will we put it on? He has his title for heaven, this man at the party, but not his fitness for heaven. Because probably somewhere along the way he said, oh, well, I'm trying to be like Jesus. Oh, don't worry about that. That doesn't matter. That's legalism. Don't even try. You got an invitation? Just show up. I mean, I don't have to get rid of this or this. Or, no, just come. Yes, you come as you are. But he doesn't want to leave you that way. My kids come as they are dirty all the time. And believe me, my wife, before she puts them to bed, she never leaves them that way. I probably could, but she can't. <laughs> Let's look at another one. Matthew chapter 25, just a few pages over. The parable of the wise and foolish virgins. It says, The kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered. How many? All. Liberals, conservatives, the people that are part of this sector, that sector, that part, that, they all slumbered. The bridegroom, the ten virgins, they're part of the pure church, but they're all slumbering. And at midnight, a cry was heard, behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And then all the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. What's the oil? That's the Holy Spirit. That's the experience. Give us your experience. Friends, you can't give somebody else your experience. You can't take somebody else's experience. That's why it's your experience. It's your character. And when Jesus comes, if you look at all those verses that talks about Jesus giving us immortality, he's talking about our bodies. It says over and over he's going to give us a new body. It doesn't say he's going to give you a new character. The character is something we form now. Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came, also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Didn't we cast out and, and do all these things in your name? And he says, I don't know you. There has not been a change of the life. There has not been putting on the character of Christ, which is by grace, by the way, not by works. But he says, I don't know you. You know, sometimes we can go through our uh, devotional time, but really it's just reading time. We're trying to get through this schedule. We're trying to get through this chapter. We're trying to do all this stuff, and we're just checking it off, and we're quick, you know, quick prayer, whatever. It's not so much devotional in terms of, Lord, give me wisdom for today. Praying for today. Praying for the issues of the day. P 
surrendering that day and seeing that verse that is for you and saying, Lord, help me. What's that verse that talks about always knowing but never under, or always learning but never coming to an understanding? We can learn, 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 learn all day long, but I don't want to actually understand to where I have to change. You're being too harsh. But that's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to change our character so we don't just get into heaven, but we're fit for heaven, that we actually want to be there. What if we got to heaven and, and people say, well, where's this form of entertainment? And where's this? And where's that? And where's all this other stuff? And he says, it's not here. And they say, this is terrible. And he says, well, you know, I, I have nature. I have this. I have that. And he's like, I don't want that. It's not just about getting in. It's about fitting in, having the, the character of Christ. And so these virgins have put off character development. To the last minute, the foolish virgins do not represent those who are hypocritical. They had a regard for truth. They advocated the truth. They were intending to go forth to meet the bridegroom. They are attached to those who believe the truth and go with them, having lands, which represent a knowledge of the truth. And they want to share their little light. And when there was a revival in the church, their feelings were stirred, but they failed. And how did they fail? What made them foolish? They failed to have oil in their vessels because they did not bring the principles of godliness into their daily life and character. They failed to apply it to themselves. They failed to allow it to change them and transform them. I like the idea of the Holy Spirit, but I like it out here, not in here. They did not fall upon the rock, Jesus Christ, and permit their old nature to be broken up. That's really all you have to do is permit. What does it say? Let this mind be in you. It doesn't say, grit your teeth and put this mind in you on your own. It says, no, just let this mind be in you. Let the Holy Spirit work. Permit the old nature to be broken up. Not going to do it. It's too personal. Have to give some stuff up. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. So how do we form character? Romans 5, 1 to 5. Here we read, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not that only, but we also glory or rejoice in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance or patience, it might say, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Anybody ever pray for patience? You're actually praying for trials and tribulations because that is what produces patience or perseverance. I'm really sorry I lost my temper. I'm usually not that way. Why? Because I usually get my way, I guess. <laughs> but this thing just irked me. Maybe you need more tribulations so you can grow your patience and perseverance and your character. And through character, hope that when the bigger trial, the next trial comes, you will stand though the heavens fall. In self? No, in Christ, who is a well-known friend of mine that I have learned to trust explicitly. 
It's ingrained in my character by God's grace. It's a process, and it takes time. Process, and it takes time. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What are we beholding? The glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Another way to say it, by beholding we become changed. Keep looking unto Jesus day by day and allow him, let him in to change and transform you in a way that only he can do. But you have to let him in. You have to say, give me your character. I want to let your mind be in me because I know my mind. I know what sets me off. I know how I react to people. I know how I can have such a critical and judgmental spirit. I know all these things, but I need to let. I need to allow you to transform as I behold you to change me. Remember Peter? When Peter said, Lord, I'll never deny you. Never, though a thousand may fall away and all the rest, I will never. Was, was he convicted in that speech or was he bluffing? He was convicted. Lord, I will die for you. Lord, I will, I will do anything. I will never do this. I will never do that. I will always do this. And then within 24 hours, less than that, he denies his Lord not once or twice, but three times. For popularity, never. For what people would think of me, never. But it happened. Because that character had not been formed in such a way to trust him, even in those uncomfortable situations. Galatians 6, 7 says, whatever man sows, that he will also reap. I mean, not necessarily a deep thought, but think about it. You know, you put stuff in with seeds. Have you ever put something in with seeds and you put the steak at the end and, and what it's supposed to be and as it starts to come up, oh, there are my tomatoes. Those are my tomatoes? Those are not tomatoes. How do you know? Well, you sow what you reap or you reap what you sow. That sounds better. You reap what you sow. And so you can say anything that you want out of your mouth. I, I planted all corn here. Well, that's great. We're going to find out real soon if you're telling the truth or not. What are all these cucumbers? Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. The reaping testifies to the sowing. And the harvest passes the sentence. For a simple verse, that's a pretty deep thought. The reaping testifies to the sowing. What are you sowing? Where are you sowing? How are you sowing? Where are you investing your time and your energy and your resources? Because the harvest will pass sentence on where you're sowing. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Education 108 says, the harvest of life is character. And it is this that determines destiny, both for this life and for the life to come. So those two marks, those two names, those two characters, it's a development process. It's not this occasional misdeed or occasional bad deed. It's not the, I know the answer for the test, so I'm fine, I can do whatever I want. No, it's allowing that character to transform me, to let the mind of Christ be my mind. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Isn't it easily, easy to get ensnared? 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto who? Jesus, the author and finisher. He starts it and he finishes it. He who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to bring it about to completion if you just keep submitting, keep submitting, keep letting. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So the great burden of every soul should be, is my heart renewed? Is my soul transformed? Are my sins pardoned through faith in Christ? Have I been truly born again? Or am I like one of those 10 virgins? I'm relying on a past experience. Have I been born again today? And today, and today until he comes. Philippians 3, 8, and 9, I count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, all things for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The Greek there is like dung. I think it says that in the King James. I count them all as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. That's the bottom line. So what about these marks? What am I going to receive? And all? You don't have to worry about that. You just have to be in Christ. Allow him to form and mold your character. Spend time in his word every day and ask him, Lord, make me more like you today. Make me more like you today. Lord, forgive me for this. Make me change my heart today. And that's the prayer he always says yes to. He never says, no, that's not my will. Just keep dabbling in that sin. He says, yes, I will. I want to. And because you've asked, I'll give it to you. Dear Heavenly Father, by grace, we want to be there on that day. When you come to take us home, we want to be part of that number. Lord, not because of ourselves, but because we have surrendered. We have died to self, and we've asked you to come in to renew and to change our minds and to make them more like you. We want your name on our forehead today and every day as we grow in Christ until you come. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.